This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, looking to You, thanking You for Your grace and mercy that we've been singing about. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that You uh, enable us to keep uh, meditating on Your goodness and long-suffering, Your love toward us, even while we consider uh, the passage before us tonight. Lord, we pray, open up our hearts to Your truth. Make uh, these realities that uh, You've made known to us here, may, may they sink deep, have effect, take root, to produce fruit in our lives. Lord, that our love for You and faith in You may increase, that our passion to get the message out to those who need to hear may grow. And Father, that through all of these things, Your name be magnified. You you be honored and glorified. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would turn to uh, Matthew chapter 20 and... uh, Beginning about verse 17 there, we're going to look at the next section here tonight. I was thinking, I was looking at this and uh, explain as we go, but uh, it, it brought to mind passage in Isaiah 64. Um where Isaiah prays, uh, Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. And here's the part that, uh, that, I, that came to mind. For, this is Isaiah 64, 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for Him. That, is, I think, um, one of the major things that separates uh, Christianity from all of the other religions of the world. Um, and, and, and again, uh, it, it even sounds funny to say, but I want to explain it as, as we go here tonight, that, that we serve a God who acts for His people rather than the other way around, which would be um, the basis for all other religions that the people act for God. As I heard a uh, talk show host 
<laughs> One day summarize it. Say his comment was basically this: his words. Um, in Islam, he said, "You die for your God." In Christianity, he said, "Your God dies for you." And I thought that was pretty good, <laughs> pretty good summation. Um, the servant God. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Well, let me make clear right up front. We're not talking about a genie in a bottle who, you know, just is ready to go at our every wish, our every command. That's not what we're talking about. But nevertheless, we are talking about, as uh, Isaiah says, a God who acts for those who wait for Him. A God who acts for His people. Or as Jesus says here, um, one who serves. How does He do that? Well, Let's look at these verses. I want to read through these verses first and then, and then come back and go over them a little bit. Beginning in verse 17. This again is, of course, following the, uh, the, uh, the conversation that we've been looking at the last couple of Sundays. Verse 17. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In verse um, 17 um, we have Jesus' third prediction here of His death and resurrection. Uh, you, you may recall back in, in Matthew 16:21, uh, and then again in Matthew 17:22. Uh, in fact, I'll read those. They're they're brief. Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. 
and be raised the third day. And by the way, this is the first time in the, the time which uh, provoked Peter's rebuke. Peter actually rebuked the Lord for saying these things and then received a rebuke from the Lord. Second time in Matthew seventeen twenty two. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day, he will be raised up. And now, this is probably the... Uh, the, the the one that contains the most detail, the, the most explanation. Uh, how much clearer can you get than what Jesus says here in verse 17 through 19, or 18 and 19? Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So he clearly predicts um, his betrayal, his suffering, his death, um, and the fact that on the third day he will rise again. And here it does, doesn't talk about much of response, but the, 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 this is shocking to the disciples. They don't expect him to die. And again, we discussed that when we were in chapter 16. And they're thinking, you know, Far be it from you that these things should happen to you. But this is why Jesus came. Um, the last part of the section we just read, Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's why He came. That's why He lived. He came to give His life a ransom for many. It's His purpose, what He was doing. Now, I want to, uh, before we come back to that, focus in a little bit here on uh, the disciples in, this, in the in-between section here, in-between verses 17 through 19 and, and then what we just read in, in verse uh, 27 and 28. Uh, and it's interesting, by the way, that while, while Jesus is describing something this serious, uh, that, that the disciples are, are concerned with who's going to be uh, in the chief seat, right? And who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And the mother of uh, James and John. So she approaches Jesus, verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left. Now, what, again, what they're seeking is prominence in the kingdom. They're seeking um, to be great. Now, it, it's, I pointed this out before, but it's interesting to me that it doesn't seem, doesn't appear to me that, that Jesus rebukes them for that desire per se. In other words, you, you want to be one of the greatest in the kingdom? Good. But the problem is you're, you're thinking about it all wrong. All wrong. You're, you're thinking about what greatness is, how to become great, is all messed up. And so he responds this way uh, first um, in verse 22. You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, that's just a... a, a metaphorical way of referring to the sufferings that he's facing. There's, there's 
a road, you could say, to greatness that's not easy. Or at least, let's, let's say, well, it's not easy, but let's also say it this way, and this is one way in which it really it's home for us, I think. It's, it's not self-serving. I mean, there, there are what we consider to be great men and great women who are, who are willing to suffer to a great degree to serve self. I mean, people will put themselves through painful things. Uh, I had a, I, I hadn't seen this, I guess it's true, but a co-worker described it to me the other day, he saw a little clip in the news of Tebow working out and said he was pushing a truck uphill <laughs> alone. <clears throat> I don't even want to do that when I, you know, when I have to do that and you break down or something, much, much less do it as part of a workout routine. People will put themselves through pain to achieve. And, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that Tebow is self-serving, but I'm just saying that people will go to that extent if they can make a name for themselves, if they can um, somehow achieve greatness in, in the sense that the world thinks of greatness. But Jesus is, has come, and, and His mission is about service to others. And so He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with a baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they say, and I would say, uh, they say this not understanding, they say, we are able. They don't know what he's facing, and I know he's, he's, he's told them three times now, but they don't fully get it. And they certainly don't understand, I don't think, the extent well, no, they don't. I know that none of us do the extent of what Jesus went through on the cross. But they say, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Not that they're going to do exactly the same thing that he does, but it's a way of saying, then you will indeed face hardship. You will indeed face suffering. And by God's grace, uh, even though this doesn't seem to be their intention at this moment, by God's grace, they will end up living their lives for the glory of God and for the sake of other people, for the welfare of other people. So Jesus says, yeah, you will. You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. This is another thing that I find interesting that Jesus doesn't deny that those positions exist and that they're going to someone. He just simply says they're not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And you, you understand that He's just told them you are going to suffer. But you're still not going to get the exact thing you're asking for. <laughs> now, he didn't tell them, okay, you can have that if you drink the cup I'm drinking of and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Uh, he said, you will be baptized with that baptism. You will drink from that cup. But you're not going to sit uh, on my right and left. It's not, it's not mine to give. That's not mine to give. It's for those whom it is prepared by my Father. Now, when the ten heard it, verse 24 tells us, that is the remaining disciples... They were greatly displeased 
with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, "You know." Now he's he's fixing to he's he's about to expound on what true greatness in the kingdom is all about. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The Gentiles, that being the nations, you know the, the rulers of the nations lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Now, I wonder why Jesus would go there as an example. I mean, do you think possibly that's what James and John were after? What they envisioned in, in their, as their definition of greatness, that we would, we would sit and we would rule, lord it over the other ten disciples. <laughs> and everyone else in the kingdom, that we would be, next to Jesus, of course, that we would be the greatest and exercise authority over everybody else. Suggest to me that at least something along those lines is what they were thinking. And so Jesus tells them, that's, that's how the nations act. The world, the heathen, the unregenerate. Verse 26 says, and I think this is applicable not, not just to the twelve, but to all of the church, all of Christianity. Yet it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. You're not called to lord over one another. But whoever desires to become great among you. Now again, Notice what he says here. He's going to give a basically a, 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 a how-to or, or a, a correct way of thinking on this. He doesn't say, you shouldn't even be thinking about being great. It seems to me that he's saying your understanding of greatness is all messed up. And So, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Your idea of greatness is that you would lord it over your brother's. Your, your idea of greatness is that you would sit in a, a, a prominent seat and exercise authority. And he says, this is the way the world is. This is the way the world thinks. This is the way the world operates. Now, interestingly, uh, and again, I'm sure they don't fully understand it at this point, but this is not the example that they've had put before them in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they're, they're still thinking in the way of the world, even though they have an example before them that is completely uh, the opposite. So Jesus says, whoever desires to, be, uh, to become great among you, let him be your servant. The word there is where we get our uh, word deacon. And whoever desires to be first among you, verse 27, let him be your slave. That's not the way the world thinks, is it? You want to be great, then serve. You want to be first, preeminent, then make yourself a slave. And yet Jesus says, if you want to be great 
in the kingdom of God, you've got to adopt a new way of thinking. You've got to become a servant. Just as, verse 28, and here's the ultimate example, just as the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man. We could put some other titles there, couldn't we? To describe Jesus. Lord. King of glory. How about um, the express image of God's person? The radiance of His glory. How about the Word who was before anything else was? Before everything else, everything, literally, before everything else came into being, He already was and always had been. The One through whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. The One by whom all things are held together became a servant. You see why Isaiah's astonished? There's no other God like you. We've never heard or seen of anything like this. Eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard of any God like you, Lord, who acts for those who wait for Him. God is not in heaven with His hand out waiting for us to act in His behalf. Paul said he's not served with men's hands as though he needed something. We're the beggars here. We're the needy. And God is the source. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Again, it's the word from which we get our word deacon. So, if if I could just bring that over into English without translating it, it would be something like this. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be deep, but to deep. <laughs> to serve, like serving tables. We, we, we had a, a, a meeting of some of the children's teachers last night and went to Nikki's over here in Dixie Inn. And, uh, we, had, we had a really good server. And he kept checking on us. Either that or he was trying to run us off. I don't know, because we stayed and talked a long time. And he kept coming back and kept coming back asking if we needed anything. Um, But, you know, he kept our glasses full of water. He brought us food. He was serving. Now, that's not what we typically think of as greatness. And yet, Jesus is saying, that's what it's all about in the church, in the kingdom of God. We're not like the world in this sense. If you want to be great, the, ob- the objective is not to lord it over everybody or to exercise authority o- over everybody. The objective is to serve. I had a... Uh, 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 he's still around. I just haven't seen him in many, many years. But I had a, 
a, a friend years ago. He was a charismatic evangelist, and and uh, he was talking about the uh, you know and a lot of times in the uh, what Brother Carl calls the happy boys uh, in the in the Word of Faith type movement. A lot of times they they talk about you know we're the head and not the tail and this and that, and it's it's all a deal to you know build self up. And anyway, he was making reference to that, and he said, "Yes, you're the head, the head waiter." <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was a good way to put it. <laughs> that's that's us. Jesus has called us to be servers, servants, to follow His example. Let's, I'm going to go to Philippians. You can turn there if you want to. Philippians chapter two. Um, and this is where Paul sets forth the example of Christ uh, in this sense and instructs the believers at, at uh, Philippi to have the same mindset. Philippians chapter 2. Well, it's all good and always... You always have to jump into the middle of Paul's sentences. But uh, <clears throat> verse, verse 1, I'm just going to go ahead and start in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, and notice what Paul's describing here, the same, same type of, of uh, frame of mind, mindset, disposition. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, I would say that uh, this, of course, wasn't written at the time, but I would say that James and John were, were violating that command. Don't you think? All, all of that that we just read. Verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, Again, uh, what they were doing, looking out for their own interests. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And here it comes. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind. What do you mean by this mind? I think it's a mindset. Frame of mind. Disposition. Attitude. It's like in Romans where we're told the natural mind... Uh, is it enmity with God? It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The mind of the flesh is death. That is, that, that mindset, that attitude, that disposition, um, results in death. Produces only death. Let this mind, this mindset, this attitude, this disposition, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, have the same Attitude that Jesus had. Be of the same mindset. Think like Jesus. Well, what does he mean? How did Jesus think? What 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 would be our example in that? He gives it in verse six. Who being in the form of God, like we talked about a moment ago, the Creator, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Lord of Glory, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God or did, or did not consider it something to be grasped. That is, Jesus uh, existed eternally 
equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He was God. He was in the form of God. But, verse 7 says, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or slave, and coming in the likeness of men. Now, literally, that, that phrase in, in verse 7, um, but made himself of no reputation, literally, it's he emptied himself. Emptied himself. He was in the form of God, and he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Well, how did he do that? Did he become less God? No. When Jesus was in the flesh, um, walking this earth during his ministry, um, he was just as much God then as he was before then, just as much God as he is now. Always and eternally, fully God. So what, is, what does Paul mean? He, he, he emptied himself and became a slave. Well, I would, I think, rightly explain it this way. He emptied himself of his glory. Emptied himself of his glory. Now, think about Jesus' appearance um, while on this earth. Best I can tell from reading the Gospels and from what we know from other sources like the, uh, the rest of the Scripture, there was nothing that stood out about him. Nothing that would call attention to him, you know, as far as appearance, physically. Uh, I don't, no evidence. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, and you've seen drawings of this, two paintings of this too, where he has a halo or kind of thing, aura around him. No evidence of that in the Scripture. He took on flesh and looked like an ordinary man. Now, he wasn't doing uh, entirely ordinary things. Some things he was. He was a carpenter. <clears throat> but... Uh, he, he emptied himself of his glory. Now, what do you think happens? Maybe this will kind of illustrate this. What, what do you think happens when angels are in the presence of Jesus in heaven? Hmm? We're told, aren't we? In fact, Isaiah got a glimpse of that. And I think that's what he was... Asking for for the rest of the people in Isaiah 64, I read a moment ago. He said, Rend the heavens, Lord. Come down. Make Your name known. And probably what he had in mind there was, Show them what You've shown Me. Let them see You high and lifted up. Let them see the angelic beings falling down before You continually crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Listen, this was Jesus' existence before the incarnation. High and lifted up. And the train of His glory fills the temple of heaven. And the angelic beings surrounding Him, who I, I, I'm sure were magnificent themselves, 
Nevertheless, because of His glory, He had to cover their eyes, and they were constantly fall before Him, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. <laughs> that's, if we, that's Jesus in His natural state. We can say it that way. I mean, we think about our nature, right? And we're sinners and we don't even fully comprehend that. But we know that naturally speaking, we're corrupt. And Isaiah goes on to say that in that same passage. Our righteousnesses, filthy rags. That's us naturally. Filthy. Undeserving. No glory. But Jesus... The all-glorious, infinitely valuable One. And if I can say it this way, this, this is what I perceive, you know, from looking at the, the, the passages. Uh, Isaiah 6, uh, Revelation 4 and 5. This is what Jesus was used to. Through all eternity... Can you imagine that? It's constantly, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Because they're in the presence of His glory and they see His glory. They see how awesome, magnificent, majestic He is. And He emptied Himself of that. Didn't become less God. Didn't lose His attributes or lessen them. He laid aside His glory and took on the form of a servant. Paul says, He emptied Himself taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself. And that's what Jesus is calling for James and John to do. And that's what Paul is instructing the Christians at Philippi to do. That's what we're being instructed to do. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why did He do that? Why did He do that? First and foremost, to glorify the Father. That's right. Amen. First and foremost, to glorify God. The first words recorded out of Jesus' mouth were what? Anybody know? I must be about my father's business. <laughs> and some of the last words recorded were, It is finished. So for the glory of God and for our salvation. And of course the two are intertwined. I mean, that's how God chose to be glorified through saving, redeeming the people to Himself. But here it is again in verse 28. Matthew twenty twenty-eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He came, the Good Shepherd, to lay down His life for His sheep. He came to serve, to give us what we need, just like that server last night would bring us what we needed, or at least what we thought we needed, you know. Mexican food and, you know, more tea or more water or whatever it was. And He would serve. He would bring more. And if the glass went empty, He'd bring more. He was there to serve. Jesus says that's why He came. Not to be served, but to serve. And He says, you want to be great? And here's what you do. Be a servant. Well, I can't... What do I have? What do I have to bring to God that God needs? Nobody can think of anything, can you? Nothing. I I have nothing... Just, just like Paul said, he's not served with men's hands as though he needed something. God Himself said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. <laughs> he doesn't need us. He's totally self-sufficient. So who am I going to serve? Brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He doesn't need us to serve Him in that sense. We don't have anything to bring to Him and give to Him. And so, when He washed the disciples' feet, when He served them by washing their feet, He said, now, you wash one another's feet. He didn't say, I've washed your feet, now you wash my feet. It's a mutual exchange here. No, he said, I've washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. That's the same thing he's saying here. Son of man didn't come to be served, he came to serve. Now, you want to be great, you serve. Not him, not in this sense. There's a sense in which we we can legitimately say we serve Christ. But we don't don't meet his needs. And I think that's what he's talking about here. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Why? Because we need it. We didn't have any other hope. We're lost, undone, Isaiah said. The best, the best that we can do, the best that we have to offer, the best we can bring to the table, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags, polluted. So, so we don't, we have nothing to, 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 to bring to God. We can't serve Him in that sense. But we can serve one another. And that's what He's calling for. He's calling for us to be imitators of Him. The servant is not greater than his master, right? In fact, Jesus said it's enough for a servant to be like his master. I mean, that's what we ought to aspire to. To be like Him. And He came to serve. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. And Lord, we want to always be in awe 
of the truth of the gospel that you, the God of glory, the righteous judge, holy, would send your only begotten Son into the world, emptying himself of his own glory to become a servant, to die for sinners, a ransom for many. Lord, by Your grace, may the mind of Jesus be in us so that we do not esteem ourselves better than others, but others better than self. So that we're not given to self-service, but to living for Your glory and for the spiritual welfare of our fellow fellow man. Enable us, Father, we pray, to be the servants that You've called us to be. To bring glory and honor to Your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.